Blog Talk Radio. Radio show, your opening night. <coughs> crap. Uh, exi- uh, <laughs> edition of the Happy Recap. It's Sunday, April 3rd, 2016, and it just doesn't feel right, but it is opening night. And it has nothing to do with the on field thing. It's, of course, uh, EJ and I will, of course, be hashing it to death. Has, you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know, it's not a favorite day of ours to see the, the Mets or anything on Sunday Night Baseball, and even worse to see. Uh, this marquee matchup, which uh, the baseball gods deemed it worthy when the schedules were generated last summer uh, to put the Mets in Kansas City against the uh, world champion Royals. Um, so at insult to injury, as we'll be dealing with a, a basically four hours, EJ, of um, basically the ESPN's unbiased announcers talking about how much better than the uh, uh, Mets the Royals are. No, my friend, you'll be dealing with that for four hours because I will not be because this is not opening day baseball. This is not opening night baseball. This is about ESPN trying to produce a television show. So, okay, you're going to air a television television show on Sunday night. Here's the problem with your television show. It has 162 episodes per season. If I miss one, no big deal. It's like a soap opera. It's like my grandma watching her stories. She's got her general hospital on. If she misses one, no big deal. So you want to go up against the Walking Dead season finale, the biggest show on cable right now, and you want to go up against WrestleMania. For wrestling fans, it's their equivalent of the Super Bowl. I happen to subscribe to the WWE Network. I happen to not really watch it all that often. But you know what I always do watch? I watch their version of the Super Bowl in WrestleMania. So this is me giving a big middle finger to Major League Baseball, to ESPN, anyone who says, oh, it's opening night. I guess you can tell by the tone of my tweets this morning. I was getting progressively angrier and angrier, seeing all of that sort of like, oh, my God, it's opening day. Oh, I'm so happy it's opening day. Oh, I'm through the moon. It's opening day. It's not opening day. Opening day happens during what? What? The day! It's opening night? That's garbage to me. I really hate the traditionalists in baseball. They get under my skin. Some goose gossage BS always infuriates me. But there are a few things that I do actually hold as almost a religion when it comes to baseball. And one of them, which I was really pumped about, giving my son's extreme interest in the World Series last year was keeping my kid out of school, taking the day off of work, staying home and watching opening day. And no, that's not happening tonight. So you know what I'm doing? I'm doing it on Thursday with him, weather permitting. Thursday afternoon, he's staying out of school. I'm staying out of work. We're watching it, and that's my opening day. I am treating these two games with the Royals as nothing. They're fodder. They do not matter whatsoever. They are as important to me as Japanese baseball is. They're important to me as, oh, way to get this one, Major League Baseball. The other spring training games being held today. So that's great. Hey, opening day is over here for these guys, but over here doesn't matter. Just spring training. 
I am holding no regard whatsoever for these two games in Kansas City. I hope one of them gets rained out to really make it a cluster. This is just – it's a nightmare. It's a total nightmare. I, I'm happy that the Mets will be playing meaningful baseball again. I can't wait to talk about it at length next week because it's from Thursday on, it's meaningful. It means something. But right now, I do not care. I think it's a joke that Major League Baseball gives this to ESPN. I think it's a slap to the face of the fans of both teams who competed in the World Series last year. No fan in their right mind likes opening night baseball. So what do you do? You force it upon the two best teams in the league. If you're really desperate to have opening night baseball, schedule some type of rivalry. Give me Yankees-Red Sox for the 9 billionth time that ESPN loves that matchup. Give, give me some Dodgers-Giants. Give me something. Give me Cubs-Cardinals. I don't care. But don't penalize fans of the World Series teams by treating us to this Sunday night BS. Well, Ryan, uh, always good to have you with us. Uh, I want to get your take. But for me, I was going to say, you know, besides each is a magnificent point, you know, the fact that interleague baseball on opening night, I'm sorry, that's just wrong. Yeah, I just want to start off by saying that to EJ's point about WrestleMania, EJ is now officially the third biggest heel in WWE. <laughs> and he's better at cutting a promo than Roman Reigns. That all being said, yeah, I have, I'm fortunate that I'm going to be able to set up TVs side by side so that I'll be able to watch WrestleMania and the Met game at the same time. But I'll be honest, my focus is going to be on WrestleMania because, like EJ said, it is the Super Bowl of professional wrestling. And if I'm going to indulge, I'm going to indulge on the Super Bowl and catch the other 161 Met games. Uh, so I'm excited for the season. I'm much less excited for an 8.30 p.m. game on a Sunday night when I'd much rather be watching something that I'm not going to be paying full attention to uh, and not living and dying by the outcome of. You know, and, and one thing I do want to mention as, as we're getting started with the program, I usually say this at the top of the show, joining us in about 15 minutes uh, is Eric Sherman. We'll be looking back to a better day in baseball. Uh, he's the author of a brand new book out called Kings of Queens, which is about the 86 Mets and their lives since. So I wanted to promote that before we go but too much further and uh, hopefully look back to a time where EJ was probably less angry. Um, <laughs> Doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. <laughs> Oh man, I tell you, you know, it's one thing to be angry. It's about angry about opening day. You'd think, with how angry we really all are, uh, that EJ, that you would think that this is a season we're expecting the Mets to do poorly at. But I think uh, pretty much all of us uh, believe that this is a team that will be in the playoffs come October, uh, subject to more abuse by ESPN. Well, to Ryan's earlier point about there never being a kinder, gentler me. Yeah, the last time the Mets or the '86. World Series was happening. I'm sure I was ranting somewhere because uh, Jem and the Holograms had replaced T-Man on my local afternoon programming. So you're right, right? That, that, that time doesn't exist. But as for uh, your point, JB, you're absolutely right. This, we've talked about it at length. This is absolutely a playoff team. Um, uh, th- this rotation right now, the way it's set up, is set to probably be the best in baseball with Zach Wheeler coming back. I mean, you have to look often that this is the unfinished business season. This is not the season for a regression. This is the season where you're going a lot further, hopefully, and you are claiming that championship. And honestly, you hopefully can even clinch it a lot faster this year 
because you're not going to be rolling out that same abysmal lineup that the Mets rolled out for the first half of the year last year. This year, you're rolling out a lineup from day one that is fully competent and capable. Yeah, I mean, and the one thing, too, I mean, you know, you talk about the spring training games, a lot of uh, a lot of losses in there, a lot of ties. I think uh, some fans who don't necessarily understand the meaning of spring training and what it's about and what individual players are trying to do, pitching at, playing out of position, playing out of time, you know, swinging at pitches they wouldn't swing at typically, uh, pitching pitches they wouldn't pitch in certain situations, you know, those things aside, you know, th- those wins and losses don't worry me. The ties bother me, but that's because I hate ties. I don't believe they belong in sports at all. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, Basically, I, I I felt like I saw a lot of what I needed to see this spring. I think the only thing that uh, the only two areas that concern me, a little bit concerned about Antonio Bastardo coming out of the gate, uh, but uh, not overly so. Uh, give him certainly give him more than his fair chance to shake things up and sort it out. Uh, and then of course, uh, Asdrubal Cabrera just not getting as many reps as I would have liked at uh, at shortstop. But uh, you know, talk about being bitten by the shortstop bug, EJ. Uh, <laughs> St. Louis uh, picks up uh, Tejada to uh, uh, take over at shortstop, and now he's on the DL over in St. Louis as well. The L.A. Dodgers start the season with 10 guys on the DL, and we're pretty much injury-free to start the season. I feel pretty good about that. Yeah, knock on wood, save for Zach Wheeler's still going to need half the season to recuperate, which we knew well early on last season. Uh, This is a team... So pretty much coming out of camp fully healthy, which is something we haven't said. Obviously, you're going to always have a question mark about David Wright. As uh, one writer put it, he's day-to-day for the rest of his career. But I actually feel good about the options you have right now at third base if, in fact, David Wright needs a day or two here. You hope it would never be any type of extended absence for David, that maybe he just kind of listens to his own body and knows, all right, maybe I need a day every week. Maybe it's even two days every week. If they don't have a scheduled off day, in a week, maybe he has to take two days off. We'll see as, it, as the season plays on. But I think what we saw last year was we were fully anticipating David Wright to be a three- to four-day-a-week player. And, in fact, he played a whole heck of a lot more than anyone expected coming off the spinal stenosis DL. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's exactly the thing. Is I think uh, you know, even the spring ride, I feel like I've seen more of Wright than I expected to. They waited to play him in games for a little while there, but uh, – He's been remarkably consistent and looking good. He's not looked at all what I would say run down at all at any point this spring. No, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they held him back as much as they did, and he's coming off of an offseason. But I I do think that EJ is right. I think that if they play it conservatively with with Wright and try to hold him back and, and keep him in that 120 to 130 game range, I think there's a possibility that he can actually play through the whole season, manage the manage the back pain, and manage all of the issues that are going to arise from that. And I think that he can have a very good season. Uh, and, you know, it gives a chance for regular playing time to some of the guys on the bench who, you know, are going to be counted on in spots that we don't know down the road. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to be in a slump. So I, I think it's actually better for the team to, to – know going in that, okay, we're going to have Flores playing at third base for 30 games, or we're going to have someone backing right up and getting somewhat regular playing time, build that into it so that there's a consistency and the team just rolls with that and, and moves forward. Yeah. And I mean, I think too, with uh, you know, Eric Campbell making the final uh, bench spot and uh, you know, you have Matt Reynolds probably in waiting to be the first guy to take that should 
Campbell falter, EJ, you have a situation where the the Mets definitely at some point down the road here, probably at the trading deadline, will need a a veteran bench piece in this whole situation. Yeah, I could see a Juan Uribe type would be a a perfect addition uh, for this team eventually down the road. But, you know, for right now, I'm not worried about Campbell being the primary backup. We've said it enough. He is a competent enough player that if you don't overexpose him, he can be productive. When he hits one, he hits it a mile. He, he definitely has that pop in the bat that you like, and he's always been consistent at their base. So, for now, I'm totally fine with Eric Campbell getting a look or two a week. It's any time that it might have to be longer than that that you would really probably have to uh, heat up some other general manager's cell phones. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a matter of, you know, how much he plays. I, I know there's a certain amount of the fan base that's frustrated with Campbell, but I saw nothing, again, I you know, we know what he can do when he's given limited playing time. He's a talented player. He, you know, he's certainly a major league capable ball player who's very easily exposed. He is not an everyday player in the major leagues, but the role he's called to do at this point is not an everyday role. So, you know, I don't feel particularly bad about it either, Ryan. I think that, uh, you know, Campbell making that final slot is is fine. The the interesting thing I think that a lot of people saw was uh, Logan Verrett making the bullpen over Sean Gilmartin. Yeah, that that was interesting. Uh, I I think there's going to be a lot of shuffling within that bullpen. I think there's going to be guys moving up and down depending on the situation and and upcoming matchups. But uh, I I think with the depth that the the back end of the bullpen is going to have, I think it's a good idea to just be able to go with the hot hand or go with the guy who's earning the playing time and then just – if a guy needs time off, you know, whether there's a phantom DL trip or guys with options can go up, you know, be sent up and down. Uh, I think having a couple of fresh arms and, and having a number of guys who are capable of, of coming in and, and pitching for a few weeks and, and giving everyone a little bit of time off is going to be good for that bullpen. Uh, and because I do have to go, I'm just going to transition right now because I'm not on the record anywhere with this I'm going to go ahead and say 94 wins for the Mets this season and Matt Harvey say yeah. All right. That's, that might as well uh, transition to that, uh, since, he, that since he pretty much forced our hands on that. EJ, I know you're, you're going a little bit higher than that, I'm sure, but uh, let's, let's get your numbers since, we, since we're going for it here. I'm uh, 102 on the wins, uh, win division by at least 10 games. And if there's going to be a Cy Young talk, I'm actually going to lead more towards Noah Syndergaard. Yeah, I, I think the thing about it is that the Cy Young, and I will get to my number here in a second, the thing that, that concerns me about the Mets and Cy Young is I, I feel like that obviously, yes, I think there's three guys yeah. who are going to be legitimate contenders for the Cy Young Award. The aforementioned Mr. Harvey, the aforementioned Mr. Syndergaard, and the, you know, the now-mentioned Mr. DeGrom. I think all three of them are going to have votes at the end of the year. I think all three of them are unfortunately going to cancel out each other. Um, and so I am actually going to go and say that uh, it, it will be, in fact, uh, Clayton Kershaw winning the, the, the uh, with the Dodgers this year. Even though I believe the Dodgers will miss the playoffs, I believe Kershaw will actually win the Cy Young this year. Uh, I, you know, that, I, I, that's not tremendously a hot take. Again, they're starting the season with uh, 10 guys on the disabled list. They they regressed in the off season. They lost key players. Um, I, I see the Dodgers as missing the uh, the um, uh, playoffs. 
I think the two wild card teams, will, I think one will come out of the West. I think one will come out of the East. I don't think you see one come out of the Central this year or both come out of the Central. Uh, I do believe the Mets win 95 to 98 games. I believe that is uh, where the Mets will wind up. The only thing I'm not sure is, is that good enough to win the division or is that good enough to win the wild card? It will be one of the two of those. The Mets will be in the playoffs. And, of course, you know anything from there, EJ, is an absolute crapshoot since the Mets had the worst record going into the playoffs last year and got within three games of winning the World Series. Yeah, exactly. And then the other number I was almost foolish enough to ask you is I was going to say uh, predict the clinch date. But anyone who's uh, familiar with the Happy Recaps Forum from the message board days will know that we infamously started a thread called Predict the Clinch Date. And that would be the year the Nets infamously, infamously had a seven-game lead with 17 left to play. So I'm not going to ask you the date on that No, not uh, absolutely not. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I would refuse politely to answer that question. <laughs> Because uh, yeah, I, like, again, you know, especially when you're dealing with a wild card versus a division lead, I think I I, I think it's going to be you know for all people have said about the Nationals, um, I do think they underachieved last year. I don't think they're as good as they were last year, but you know if they come around, I I do see them as somewhere in the they're going to wind up somewhere between 92 and 100 wins, man. I I just don't know on which side of those it's going to be. Uh, they're going to be a playoff team, and they're going to absolutely 100% be a thorn in our side again all year long. Yeah, the Nats, like you said, I don't think they're as good as they were last year, but they definitely are healthier than they were last year. And as Mets fans, we can attest that when your team is not healthy, some of the lineups you run out there just look downright awful. So I do agree that they're probably going to they, – they probably will be better despite not being as good, if that makes sense. But I still think the thing that's going to hurt them is the fact that they have to play us so much. Now, while that also means they do get to feast on the Phillies and the Braves like we do, I definitely think that you'll be looking there at Mets versus Nats matchups as as kind of primetime, dare I say primetime, let's say showtime viewing, because uh, those games are really going to mean something in the long run. Like I said, I do still think they're going to, the Mets will win the division by 10, but you heard my prediction. My prediction is 102 wins. So I could definitely see the Nats still being in the 90-win territory. So you're right. I think they can come out as a wild-card team, and I agree with you. The other wild-card team is probably coming from the West Coast, not from the Central. I just don't see any of those teams. Obviously, you see a runaway division winner there. And despite my criticisms of uh, the entire baseball world anointing the Cubs as the automatic World Series winners already, I think you'll agree that they're definitely looking like the the easy division winners. I don't see any of the other teams in that division really coming up and and probably challenging one of those teams out West for that second wild card. You know, I think, you know, and as I look at the various rotations around baseball, I mean, I look at the Giants, who I think will win the NL West. I look at the Diamondbacks, who I think will be a strong contender, along with the Cardinals. But I think uh, I think those two are teams that are really strong contender for that second wild card spot, along with the Mets and Nats. And I look at every one of those teams, and I think in a short series, every single one of them is capable of beating the Chicago Cubs. And that's why I have such a hard time with the anointing. I mean, you know, the, the Diamondbacks took a huge hit in their last day of spring training, losing A.J. Pollock for what could be the entire season. You just don't know at this point. A broken elbow is a really, really crappy thing to have yeah. happen. Um, I'm really confident. I mean, 
I'm really confident in his replacement, a guy named Socrates Brito, who I saw play, I think it was A-ball, um, uh, um, advanced A about two years ago. He played in a game and really impressed me. There was two guys in that game that were major league caliber, Socrates Brito and some Correa kid on the other side. Um, the, um, the, the reality of it is, is I really like Socrates Brito. I, I, I think he's got the capability of being as good as uh, A.J. Pollock. The, question, the problem is he ain't there yet. So, I mean, that really hurts the Diamondbacks, but it doesn't hurt them enough, in my opinion, for the Dodgers to sneak by them. Uh, and obviously the, the Rockies aren't. Uh, but, uh, you know, you look around baseball right now, in my opinion, well, I think a lot of people are picking this right now. I think it is probably going to be either the Mets or the Giants in the World Series against the Houston Astros. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, I definitely feel like it is the Astros year. I mean, you look at the it's a they are a hard team not to like. When you look around the American League and you look at the way that they're built their roster from a positional standpoint, from their depth, I mean, they still have guys who they anticipate will be an impact on the major league team who probably could from opening day. There's just not a spot for them right now, so they're going to open the season at AAA. I really like what I've seen out of the Astros, um, and I definitely can see them being the representative. Uh, the Astros-Royals would be a good time because I do think the Royals are good enough to be back in the ALCS, but it remains to see how those, those cards fall. And from the National League, yeah, I agree. I really would love to get a Mets-Giants NLCS. I think the New York history would be a lot of fun. Uh, the Giants are the team that we've kind of modeled ourselves after, I feel. You uh, to get the good young talent coming up through your system, and then you build around them. And, you know, for everyone who says the Cardinals' way is the way to do it, uh, I mean, you look at the past decade, it's been the Giants' way is the way to do it. So I would love to get that NLCS. And then, like you said, given the pitching on both sides, seven-game series, anything could happen. I would probably like the Mets in that series because I am really biased <laughs> for no other yeah. logical reason, but I, I would love to have that NLCS this year, not just because, you know, the, the whole historical reference with the, the New York reference and all, it also means that the Mets just had another hell of a good year. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, as much as we've enjoyed talking about what we expect from this season and uh, you know, our annoyances with the, the ESPN presentation of quote unquote opening night, one of the things that I think, you know, one of my favorite things to talk about, I know, it, EJ, it's one of yours, is certainly, you know, great Met seasons. And I think in our lifetime, really, let's be honest, it all comes down to 1986. And Eric Sherman has written a great new book called Kings of Queens, and it talks about a, a very unique angle. I've talked about this before. This is a great year. If you're a book fan and a Met fan, this is a great year for reading because you're going to have a bunch of books on the 86 team and a bunch of books on the 2015 team, all for taking in the reading. And uh, one of the first to come out is Kings of Queens. And I got to tell you, I have thoroughly enjoyed this book uh, because it's got a kind of unique take on everything. It's basically life since 86. And as we know, for some of our superstars, it's not been all wonderful. But uh, Eric Sherman had the ability to go around and talk to quite a few of them and get some takes. And uh, he's turned it into a fantastic book. Eric Sherman, thanks for joining us today on the Happy Recap. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I really enjoy your show. Well, appreciate it. Definitely appreciate it. Talk a little bit. First, uh, I mean, your first kind of touching into writing about the Mets was the autobiography with Mookie Wilson a couple years ago. Talk a little bit about that book first and, and um, 
how you came to work with Mookie and how that book came about. Well, with Mookie, um, it's interesting. I, I had written a couple of uh, autobiographies before. Uh, one was with Glenn Burke, uh, and the one after that was with uh, Pirates pitcher Steve Blass um, of the Steve Blass disease fame. And, uh, and so I had a couple of um, autobiographies under my, my belt. And my agent approached me and said, hey, how would you like to do one with Mookie Wilson? Uh, My agent uh, represented Buddy Harrelson on his book, Turning Two. And um, so Mookie uh, became interested in writing his memoir. And he contacted Buddy Harrelson, who he knew did a book. And um, and so Buddy said, yeah, call uh, Rob Wilson, this literary agent. He's terrific, and um, that's what he did. And so that's how I originally got connected with Mookie. You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I've i been fortunate enough to I come from the memorabilia world. So a few years ago, it seemed like uh, Mookie and Buckner were out on the circuit together, and I happened to, to get to have a lot of conversations with those guys. And it's funny because when you think about it, there's a couple moments in sports that you just have to say a phrase and you know what we're talking about, whether it's do you believe in miracles, things of that nature. And one of them certainly is it gets by Buckner. But what really kind of fascinated me was these two guys, because of being on the memorabilia circuit together, because of always being linked in history together, it seems like they've, they've formed this bond, a real a actual friendship with one another. And they, it's, it's always funny to hear Mookie claiming that he would have beaten Buckner to the bag anyway. But it's really interesting that so many years down the line, what was really a a terrible moment for Bill Buckner has ended up catapulting a a dear friendship to him. It's it's very unique. Uh, They are definitely close friends. Uh, I've been with Mookie and Bill together. I've been with them separately. Uh, I talk to them both on the phone uh, from from time to time. Uh, And they're both great guys. And, you know, the tragedy of that play is that Buckner is one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. He's, he's kind of like a cowboy. Um, you know, he, he kind of talks at his own pace, and he's kind of a, you know, a tough old guy now. And, um, and, and he's, he's in really good shape for someone that's 65 or 66. Um, but he's also a guy that had 2,715 hits and won a batting title and was an excellent defensive player. Um, and, you know, what's, what's going to be on the guy's epitaph? I mean, it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, had, had the ball in game six roll through his legs. It's, it's, it could very well be baseball's greatest tragedy uh, because this is a guy that doesn't deserve this type of fame. Um, you know, just a terrific, terrific ball player for, uh, he was, it was a four decade guy, you know, uh, he started his career in 69, retired in 1990, I think it was, uh, just a stellar baseball career. And all he's remembered for is that error and Mookie, um, who had a, a splendid 13 year career, all he's really remembered for is hitting that. <laughs> that uh, 12 bouncer, you know, that went up the fir- first baseline in Game Six, and that, in a sense, is a little bit tragic because Mookie was a, a terrific ball player. 
Yeah, it's one of those things. I think as an eleven-year-old watching it, obviously, uh, you know, you point and laugh and go, "Ha ha, Buckner! Ha, that's so hilarious!" You know, as as a baseball connoisseur and as a fan of baseball over over everything else, you, you look at it, and go, "This is one of those guys." And Buckner specifically, that his this one play could have single-handedly kept him out of the Hall of Fame, which is like one of the ultimate crimes in baseball. Well. If he had reached 3,000 hits, if, if, if his legs and his ankles and his knees would have held up for another three years, which would have been a stretch because then you, you know, you're talking about, a, uh, I think, like a 24-year career. Um, and if he had gotten to 3,000 hits, I, I think, especially back in those pre-steroid days, it, it would have been an automatic. I mean, you, you had under 20 guys at that time um, – to reach 3,000 hits. You might even still have less than 20. I'm not sure. But I, I think they'd have to put him in. I mean, 3,000 3, hits, it's right there with what 500 home runs used to mean and, and those types of figures, or, you know, 300 wins. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's just a tragedy. That's all that he's really remembered for by the casual fan especially. And, um but you know that was a terrific '86 World Series, and 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 you know with game, with the Buckner game, which is what it's called uh, by so so many. Uh, I mean, there there were three or four or five decisions and plays before that era that really cost the Red Sox. You know, there was the decision to even have Buckner out there in the ninth or in the tenth inning. Uh, you know, throughout the season in the playoffs, it was Stapleton who would come in. Uh, there was um, taking Clemens out of the game. Um, that was a decision by McNamara where, where Clemens clearly wanted to go up there and hit and stay in the game. Um, there was the pickoff play uh, that, that never was um, it was Stanley who had Ray Knight dead to rights if he had picked up Gedman's sign. There was the pass ball uh, because Gedman was crossed up uh, on the pass ball that allowed Mitchell to score. So, you know, to, to say that Buckner cost the Red Sox the series or even that single game is ludicrous. And I, and But it's just one of those things in, in baseball uh, I mean, we've all seen that play a thousand times, and that's pretty much the only play you see of Buckner other than him trying to uh, haul in Hank Aaron's uh, 715th home run in left field. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I think, I think back to 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, when they were having the 20th anniversary celebrations, and uh, when it comes to Mookie, it felt like he was kind of the, the real ambassador from that team to the fans. It felt like... Uh, any community outreach program the Mets were involved in, anytime there was some kind of pub- publicity was going to happen away from Shea Stadium, it felt like Mookie was the guy who they were reeling out there as the 86 alumni, and it felt like his relationship with, with the team was at an all-time high. How has that relationship changed in recent years, and where does Mookie stand with the Mets as of today? Well, he's, he's still a team ambassador, which, which after our book is – May, you know, maybe a little hard to believe because he was, he's, he's brutally honest, which is what people respect. Of, of that entire 24-man roster in 86, it was a 24-man roster that, that year. He was the most respected 
player on that team. Uh, he was with the Mets from 1980 through the entire decade, well, almost the entire decade. He was traded in the during the 89 season. But even today, I mean, people really on that club, in that organization, really respect him. But he was very critical, and he was critical because he, he wanted a bigger say in the organization. Mookie loves the Mets, and he felt that his knowledge of the game was being underutilized and that um, during his playing career, um, he was also underappreciated. You know, he was their starter um, until halfway through the 85 season when when Lenny Dykstra came up. And he kind of uh, had to fit into a platoon role with the team for the next four years, as did Dykstra, who wasn't happy about it. Now, Dykstra was more outspoken about it. You know, Mookie um, displayed his displeasure more in-house, you know, with Davey Johnson, with with the general manager, Frank Cashin. Um, But Mookie has not always been a happy camper in the Mets organization. And in in recent years, it's because, uh, you know, he was dismissed as a coach twice. And and he's just wondering why. You know, he, he never received an explanation. Now, the first time he was on Bobby Valentine's uh, coaching staff, so a lot of times when a manager is replaced, you know, they like to bring in their own, their own coaches. So, okay, so he, he lived with that. But this mo- mo- most recent time uh, when he was first base coach and uh, was let go after one season, you know, it was under Terry Collins and – and Collins, it was out of his hands. And honestly, like a lot of the manager, managerial decisions are out of Collins' hands. Let's face it, Sandy Alderson runs that team. And, you know, Collins makes some of the decisions, but, um, but certainly not all of them. Uh, Alderson's a very powerful man in that Mets organization, probably the most powerful. Well, let's talk about the transition here uh, from the book about Mookie uh, comes this book, Kings of Queens. Talk about how one led to the other. Well, Mookie uh, and I were on the book signing tour and the media tour for a solid week together, and it was our last book signing. So at this point, um, he had signed something like 2,500 books during the week. And um, so I'm sitting at the table at the Words bookstore in, in Maplewood, New Jersey, and Mookie's wife, Rosa, was, was with us. And so she goes to me, you know, Eric, what's your next book project going to be? And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking, you know, maybe something on Roberto Clemente. Uh, the, you know, he, he had somewhat of a mis- mysterious playing career, even though he was so great. Um, but then I said to her, you know, but so much has been written about him. And even though I have so many contacts of, uh, of former teammates that played with him from doing the Steve Blass book, I- I'm, I'm just not sure if I could come up with a fresh angle. So she goes, you know, how about something on the 86 Mets? You know, I, I, uh, I'd love to know what Sid Fernandez is doing today and what some of the other guys are doing. And I thought about it, and I'm like, well, you know, I, I don't want to be one of those mushy, where are they now today type things. And I, I, I thought about it more and more, and I'm like, what if I just focused on, you know, the 14 or 15 guys from that team, the, you know, the key players, the guys that have 
really intriguing, riveting stories. Uh, you, you know, not just the starters or the strawberries, the Goodens, the Dykstras, but also the Danny Heaps, the Kevin Mitchells, the Ed Hearns, um, guys like that that not a whole lot has been written about, but I had heard, um, you know, that had gone through some real challenges uh, since their days with the Mets. And um, then I remembered Roger Kahn's book, The Boys of Summer, where he went out and visited uh, members of the Brooklyn Dodgers about 20 years after covering them. And I thought, you know, that would be an angle that's never been done on the, on the 86 Mets. Yeah, I mean, you've, had, you've probably had 30 books at least written on the 86 Mets. But this would be a fresh angle, and um, I did it, and it's really seemed to uh, to reach a lot of people. Um, it, you know, so far the feedback's been been great, and um, so I think that was the right choice. Well, I really love the angle of just following the journey of the guys who aren't uh, immediately off the tip of your tongue when you say '86 Mets. We've had uh, Ed Hearn on a couple times. He has a great story to tell. There are so many great stories to tell from it. But like you said, you actually got out and went out to, to visit these guys. What was the most, uh, let's call it, unique location that this voyage took you through? <laughs> ah, man, the most unique? Um, all right, let me think quick here. Um, uh, the most unique, well... Uh, interviewing Howard Johnson, where he sat during Game Three of the World's of the '86 series at, in the Fenway Park dugout, the visitors' dugout was cool. Wow! Yeah, um, that was really neat. Uh, and he had only been back to Fenway once before that, so that was cool. Uh, the uh, then uh, being with Doug Sisk in one of his favorite restaurant bars. Uh, that I think added a lot to to the chapter um, because you know he, he's old friends with the owner and um, and so I thought that was kind of neat um, a neat di- dynamic to it um, but you know they're all interesting in their own way um, but yeah th- those two stick out to me the most yeah, you opened the book talking to Ed Hearn, and as EJ mentioned, uh, he's a guy we've had on the show a couple times. I've got I've been able to get to know him myself personally over the last uh, 15 years or so, and his uh, his 86 uh, uh, championship ring remains the only one I've ever touched. Uh, but uh, talk a little bit about that story because I, I I like to hear I mean I like to get that story out as often as I can, and we haven't had a chance to talk about it in a while. Um, his story is very, very different, and one of those you just don't expect to hear from a former ball player, because we see them as these invincible types. Yeah, Ed Hearn, you're right. He was the first player that I went to see, um, and uh, you know, I, I wasn't completely sure uh, if this book project was going to work. You know, because uh, not just picking up the phone and being able to reach these guys by phone, but actually going to their homes, uh, their dugouts, their favorite bars, you know, all over the country, traveling well over 30,000 30, miles. I wasn't sure if it was going to work, but Ed was the first. And 
Um, yeah, his his story is just incredible. Um, I I think to narrow it down to the thing that I took away from it that just surprised me the most is that he contemplated suicide. You know, his his health. He went from playing in the you know from from being a member of the '86 World Champion Mets to so quickly, you know, have, having these life threatening. Uh, illnesses and 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 he's had to combat these illnesses, you know, for 27 or 28 years, um, and 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 then his son, you know, has, has been battling serious life-threatening diseases as well, and so he's gone through all this. But the biggest surprise was just days after almost taking his life with a handgun, he became a motivational speaker and started helping people um, with, you know, with talking about his own struggles and how his faith uh, in God helped get him through the tough times uh, and helped convince him not to take his own life. Um, You know, his son at that time was just a baby, and um, and he, uh, you know, his faith probably saved his life. Um, So that's... That that I mean I think is incredible that you know you can go from being to the point where you've given up on your life to going and helping other people uh, through motivational um, speeches and uh, and I I guess one of the great lines in the book you know a, after one of his speeches um, someone in Kansas City um, who was at the speech came came up to him afterwards and said. Uh, you know, a lot of people say the David Cohn trade was the worst that we ever made. Well, after hearing you speak today, it was one of our best trades. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, Ed's story is a phenomenal one and one that doesn't get out there often enough. And I kind of feel like the, one of the reasons for that is that as society, we we tend to focus on the the broken celebrity and the, and the falling celebrity. Obviously, we've all heard about the meteoric rise and fall of Lenny Dykstra post-career. But for the guys that you talk to who haven't made the headlines because they haven't had that meteoric fall, which are the guys that you, you talk to are, have had what we would call successful lives post-career outside of baseball? I mean, obviously, Keith Hernandez and Ronnie are doing great on SNY, but hey, as Mets fans, we see them 160 times a year. Who are some of the guys that we don't know of that have moved away from baseball completely and done successful in other fields? Well, one guy that I would say has been very successful, but he's remained in baseball, is Danny Heap. Um, And the name of that chapter is Top of the Heap. Um, He has, at the Incarnate Word um, University in San Antonio, has taken that baseball program to basically an independent uh, college baseball team all the way to Division One over the last 17 or 18 years. Um, you know, they were Division Two as of a couple of years ago. Then they became Division One. Danny Heap has well over 550 career college wins. Um, he's starting to draft guys out of high school, uh, or I should say re- recruit. Um, guys out of high school that have major league potential. Um, that is one story that was completely, as far as I could tell, untold 
outside of the city of San Antonio. Um, so out of all the guys, um, the real success story uh, that no one's really heard about, I would say would be Danny Heap. Um, and I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, the others we pretty much know about, you know, like Bobby Ojeda did, did very well as a pre- and post-game a- analyst, and I think we'll be seeing him again. I mean, he's so good at what he did. Um, so if he so cho- chooses, I think he'll get another job. Um, so, um, yeah, I would say Dan- Danny Heap, uh, he's had a, an incredibly successful college baseball career. Now, you mentioned Bobby Ojeda. Of course, he had a, a career-defining year with the 86 Mets, obviously his, arguably his best his best season professionally. Um, very well known, unfortunately, for another incident uh, when he was with the Cleveland Indians. Talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, uh, he was on the Indians, and it was spring training, and, um, and he went out um, on a boat with a couple of his teammates. It was twilight, uh, a little bit difficult to see. And they're riding their boat back to the shore. And uh, I forget if it was Olin that was driving the boat. I'm not quite sure. But whoever did it, they did. They miscalculated where the dock was. And, uh, I mean, literally two of them were pretty much decapitated. Um, and Ojeda, um, he hit on the dock his forehead and I think he lost two pints of blood um, which is I mean a lot of people would die from that well he survived it and he came all the way back from that from that injury and not just physically did he come back but psychologically Um, now this was towards the end of his career and as you probably have read you know Ojeda pitched in pain his entire career. Um, so when he came back from this, um, and after having pitched for, I think, 12 years at that point, uh, he was near the end. Um, but, uh, you know, you talk about these 86 Mets that have had these challenges and tragedies away from the field. Uh, is just another one of them, you know, which is what makes this team so intriguing because, you know, it's a team that won 108 games. They're one of the most dominating regular season teams in the history of the game. Then they won two just absolutely compelling postseason series. And, um, you know, they walked with a swagger and they, and, and it was their only championship that, that they had. And then to see so many of them, you know, after that 86 season, um, you know, have, have these mishaps, these tragedies. Um, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's like some Russian novel, you know, what happened with the 86 Mets, uh, just, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're at the highest peak. And then, um, so many of them, uh, fell to the lowest depths. Uh, and, but thankfully, there's a happy ending with with most of these guys, and you know I hope that comes through in the book. You know, in achieving the happy endings for these guys, it, it's kind of I think it's just because that was such a public team. There were so many characters on that team that any one of them in another city would have been the, the lone superstar on a team. They had them 
top to bottom. Well, not top to bottom, but they had him right at the top there. And as, so when you see a Doc or a Daryl or a Lenny Dykstra as they're they're falling to their lows, it's going to be highly publicized, unfortunately. But did you find, as you were talking to some of these guys, that even now, 30 years later, that they are still somewhat of a, a – I mean, obviously every clubhouse has its pockets of guys who are friends here and there. But is there still that camaraderie amongst them and even friendships where they're still in touch with one another? Yeah, definitely. Um Danny Heap told told me that you know once or once a year, once every couple of years, when when there's you know when when Steiner will get them together and they'll do a team autograph signing or a team reunion like they wanted the one they had back in January. Um, these guys don't do it for the money. They 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 really don't. And 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 I I believe Heap when when he said that. These guys do it because it's a way for them to all get back together again and and to share the memories, to find out, you know, what each of them are doing today, how their families are doing. Uh, um, they're, they're genuinely concerned with one another's lives, and that's why they get back together. And uh, it's still a very tightly knit group. Um, and uh, they're all still a little bit worried about Lenny Dykstra. Um that that was a common thread when I spoke to them, um, but the rest of them, uh, you know, they're really glad that Strawberries put his life back together again in a big way. Uh, Doc Gooden, you know, he talks to kids now on the perils of drugs, and um, so a lot of them have really put their lives back together. But the one guy that they're all still, uh, I mean, ma- many of them told told me they're still worried about it is in fact Lenny. Well, you talked well, yeah, to Lenny in the book. Amazing, amazing article that came out a couple of years ago. It was, I think it was like an 11-page article about Lenny really chronicling what had happened with his life from top to bottom, from his rise as a, quote, financial genius to that incredible collapse of just his reputation and career. And I know uh, from talking to a few people, he during this recent Mets success and World Series run, he was hosting a couple of viewing parties during the World Series out in Long Island, and the, it would sound like those, those concerns are, are founded by the, the teammates. And I wonder, does he still have any guys who consider him a friend from that team who maybe, uh, maybe are, are giving him a, a considerate ear? Um, I think Howard Johnson is probably his best friend on the team. Um, he, uh, he admires Mookie um, quite a bit. Um, but I think of all of them, he seems to be the closest with Howard Johnson. Um, I, I actually saw Lenny in January again, and um, you know, I you know, you have to be a little bit worried about his health, uh, to be honest. Um, you know, just by the way that he speaks and how he moves, he's been through a lot. Um, he had a terrible experience in prison. Um, he was beaten within an inch of his life by prison guards, uh, ended up in the hospital for five days. Uh, they allegedly knocked most of his teeth out. Um, and, um, you know, he's, he's, he's not in the best of shape, but I think that a lot of the guys, you know, still remember what he, what he was like. And there are several Lenny's in there. And, and I think I, I point at least three of them out in the book. There, there's the Lenny that can talk finance with you. 
Um, you know, he he did have he did develop a knowledge of how Wall Street works, and he was a, a successful options trader for a while. Um, when you talk baseball with him, it can be told in a very crude way by Lenny, only as Lenny can. But um, <laughs> but he is an intelligent baseball guy for sure. Uh, and then there's the Lenny that you're just like, he's a California surfer dude type, you know, and he's kind of, kind of talks to you in this psychedelic kind of way. Like, uh, Hey, Eric, can you feel me, dude? Can you feel me? <laughs> you know, like that type of thing. And you're like, when did this guy enter the conversation? <laughs> Where did he come from? Um, so the, he he has these multiple personalities, um, but the one thing I will say about Lenny is that uh, he loved being a member of that '86 team. And when we were sitting on the curb after our three-hour interview, waiting for the valet to bring his car, he he turned to me, you know, between puffs of a cigarette, and he goes. You know, Eric, the government may have taken everything that I own, but they can never take away the memories. And it just kind of gives you insight into what a lot of his teammates told me about him, that behind all the trouble this guy's been in, and a lot of it was self-induced, there is a side to Lenny uh, that's very endearing. And and, um, if if nothing else, he's he's entertaining. (laughs) You know, I think I think a lot of uh, a lot of these guys that, that you know we talk about, and, and uh, I, you know, that I found the the, uh, the interview with Kevin Mitchell extremely fascinating. And again, Lenny was, I mean, yeah, the the interview with Lenny and the discussion with him kind of was, uh, you know, a moment's borderline delusional on his part and borderline, you know, as real as it gets. Um, one of the players though that you interviewed, of course, Doug Sisk. You mentioned him earlier. You know, it's funny, you look at his statistics now, and you look back at uh, how they were then, and obviously a more pitcher-friendly era, and most bullpens would take somebody like that. But I, you know, my, certainly my memories are, are of a reviled, the reviled Doug Risk, um, yeah. and and how utterly hated he was when he would come into a game, and how, it, you know, it was it was the game was over. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe they put Sisk in. Uh, talk a little bit about him and... You know, because again, he's probably the one guy on the team that you know really had, from a fan's point of view, no positives. That's right. Um, and the title of that chapter was "One Was Maligned," and he, you know, he mentions in the interview that I did with him that uh, uh, one time Dave, Dave, Davey Johnson came out to the mound to visit him, and uh, you know, of course, the, it's just raining booze on him. You know, the crowd every time. You know, it was awful. And um, so he goes to Davey, hey, Davey, you better keep a little distance between you and me so they won't get us both with one shot. <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, that that's how bad it was. And when you talk about the 86 Mets, uh, he was probably the only guy on that entire team that wasn't beloved and one that, you know, even today couldn't walk into a, into a bar in New York and not have to pick up a a drink tab. I mean, he was the only one uh, that just suffered the the absolute uh, disdain of the crowd. And um, and it, it's uh, talking to him. It's 
it's so unfair. I mean, you talk, I mean, just a terrific human being. Uh, he is used, you know, he was a terrific relief pitcher for, two, for his first two and a half years with the Mets. Uh, he was the most used pitcher on the Mets as far as games pitched. And, you know, he had an ERA at or below two two runs a game uh, in his first two two seasons with the club. I mean, he he was terrific. And what happened? You know, these were the days before trainers. I mean, if if you had a case of the hiccups, you know, they you know now they jump through hoops. But these were the days when a guy like Doug Sisk could pitch with with 20 bone chips and it wouldn't be noticed for, or it wouldn't be diagnosed for a month or two. And um, so his troubles began really from overuse and when he had bone chips in his elbow. And, um, and that was the problem. And, but he continued to pitch and, you know, he, he wasn't a control pitcher anyway, because his ball moved so much. Um, but then when the arm, when he started developing these arm problems, um, he just he wasn't effective anymore, and uh, um, so it was all very unfair. And after he had the surgery, um, he came back in '86 and was a serviceable reliever. But the fans never let him forget uh, what happened in the stretch run in '84. One game in particular that I start the chapter off. Uh, I think it was September 8th, 1984, against the Cubs, and. Um, they were playing against Sutcliffe. I think the Mets were six game, games out, and they needed that win. And uh, and he came into the game and you know was awful. And and the fans never never let him forget that. Nor the following season of '85 when he really struggled. Um, so um, yeah, it still hurts him. You know, uh, it, he there's no denying it. I mean, all these years later. Uh, you know, he confessed that he still dreams about it and that there was something that wasn't finished as as far as he was concerned. You know, I think he wanted to go back to being that star relief pitcher that he was for the Mets in the 83 season and almost the entire 84 season. Um, and it didn't happen to him. And and he, he'll dream about it even today, you know, like once or twice. Now, he loved being a Met also, and he loved the camaraderie, uh, you know, the going out with the teammates. And, you know, that 86 Mets team had a lot of fun. I mean, it was, you know, that, that, that was a close team where it wasn't just a couple of guys go, going out after a game, but, you know, 15 or 16 of them going out to dinner together and then hitting the bars. Um, so he misses that, too. Um, all these guys do. You know, it was just a different time. It was before fans had iPhones, and I mean, could, could you imagine? I mean, you know, <laughs> like you guys are new, new New Yorkers. Could you imagine the Mets and the and the New York Post page six today? I mean, it would just be they would dominate the gossip pages. It would be crazy, and and with Twitter and with Facebook, and um, it, it would be unbelievable. I, I can so, think we're trying to get it. In the rotation these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, talking about where these 86 guys are up to now, and I, I feel like you can't talk about the 86 team without talking about a guy who's unfortunately no longer with us, and that's Gary Carter. And as you were talking to these guys, I feel like a lot of fans are under the, the false impression that his teammates didn't either like him or respect him. Obviously, we know of the. Uh, 
the nickname of Kodak Carter, and there's this false, well, not a false image, but there's a sense of while the quote-unquote scumbunch was out there doing their thing, they didn't respect Carter for the fact that he wasn't out there doing it with them. And, and I've talked to a few of these guys and know for a fact that is not the case. But as you were talking to many of these guys, what were their reflections of Gary Carter? Well, if you want to wrap a bow around this book, it's you can do a very good job of it with the evolution of the team's relationship with Gary Carter. When Gary Carter joined the team uh, following the 84 season, he was Mr. Expo and he was Cameron Carter. And the Mets had come off two seasons in which if uh, the cumulative win total was more than any other team in baseball. So they were a very, very good team. Um, you know, then they get Carter, they get Ojeda, and it really pushed them over the top. But when Carter joined the Mets, make no mistake, whatever these guys are telling you now, um, Carter was not uh, a very well-liked guy on the team. It was a different era where these guys didn't have, um, you know, agents always looking for commercial opportunities, advertisements, that type of thing. Um, It was a different time where ballplayers kind of, kept things in-house, and Carter wasn't like that. You know, he, he, he liked the camera, and, and he liked the money that he received from, from Newsday and some of the other um, commercials that, that, that he did. Um, you know, helped put his kids through college eventually. Um, he was a family man, uh, whereas a lot of these guys, you know, were going to topless bars when they were on the road. And uh, he read the Bible every day. And, you know, he, he wasn't a big drinker. Um, you know, so he was very different from a lot of his teammates. Now, did they respect how, how he played? Sure. I mean, he was a Hall of Fame catcher. Um, but at first, um, he was an outsider. In fact, you know, I interviewed his wife or his, his widow, I should say, Sandy, um, in the final chapter of, of the book. And, you know, she brings up the anecdote how early in his Mets career um, she was speaking with Gary, and, and she said, oh, so what would you do last night? And he says, well, I went to the movies with, um, with myself and my two best friends. And so Sandy goes, really, who? And Gary goes, uh, me, myself, and I. <laughs> you know, so there was no one really for him to hang out with, um, you know, that didn't want to go drinking and partying. And that wasn't who he was. Now, after all these years, they have really come to admire the life that he lived. And um, Strawberry and Gooden and all these guys just talk glowingly about how he lived and how they wished that they had lived more like him when they were playing and even after their playing days were over. And uh, Dwight Gooden told me a great story that's in the book about how, you know, he was battling drugs and alcohol and, you know, it's clearly a disease. And Carter was in his last days dying of cancer. And, um, and Gary said to him, you know what, Doc, you and I, you know, let's fight our diseases as hard as we can that way no one can ever look back and say that we didn't give it all that we had and um and when doc was t- telling me that he got emotional and he had to leave, leave leave the room 
you know, so that's how much Gary meant to someone like Doc. And a number of the guys just speak glowingly about him now, but that was not the case early on. Well, Eric, man, I, you know, there are a lot of other stories in the book, but uh, I want to give people a chance to read them for themselves because this is a fantastic book. This is one of those that uh, that uh, sits on my shelf only because I finished reading it, um, but it'll be one I grab back out again multiple times. It's it's, it's eventually going to get worn out. Glad I have the hardcover of it. Um, but uh, I want to, you know, on behalf of Met fans, first of all, thank you for writing this book. Um, You're welcome. I. I it, you know, like I said, this is a year we're going to see a lot of product as Met fans. A lot of books, a lot of books between last year's team and the 30th anniversary of, of uh, the 86 team. And this is, to me, top of the heap. And just an app, you know, and that's not a reference to Danny. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just a wonderful book. I really enjoyed every interview, every story. It was compelling, different, uh, unique. And it really kind of, you know, it, it really is better than, you know, those reunion specials you see on TV uh, where you know, the sitcom stars are 30 years older. This this really felt like we were you know, checking in with some old friends again to see how they've been in the intervening years. And I, I can't thank you enough for writing it. Well, thank you very much for those kind sentiments. I appreciate it. And, you know, certainly recommend it. It's available in hardcover now. Where can people check it out? All the usual outlets. Yeah, everywhere books are sold. Um, you can get it on Amazon, or you can go to any of the zillion Barnes and Nobles out there, or independent bookstores. Anywhere books are sold, you can pick it up, and uh, and it's also on ebook and audiobook and uh, everything that the 21st century has brought us. <laughs> Any signings coming up? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm going to be signing at Bergino's Baseball Clubhouse on Tuesday night. Uh, that's in Greenwich Village. And Mookie and I will be signing books at the Yogi Berra Museum on Thursday night. And then further down the road, um, I'm going to be at Foley's um, New York Sports Pub in Manhattan in May. And um, I am also going to be in Ridgewood, New Jersey as well, um, at a bookstore there. Um, that's going to be at the end of April. Um, so uh, if if anyone wants to um, check out a list of where the book signings will be, they can always go to my website, which is ericshermanbaseball.com. And if people want to catch up with you, how can they find you in the social media world? Well, um, uh, I have Eric Sherman Baseball on Facebook. I have uh, Twitter, which is at, at Sherm Baseball, at Sherm Baseball, um, and um, the website as well, uh, ericshermanbaseball.com. Well, Eric, like I said, again, uh, thank you for writing this book. I look forward to seeing what you write next. And uh, you know, regardless, Mets or not, we'd love to have you back on to talk about it. And, uh, I, you know, also want to encourage people, if you haven't for some reason checked out the Mookie book, Mookie Life Baseball and the 86 Mets, that's available in paperback now as well. Check it out. Eric Sherman, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Eric Sherman joining us. Of course, the book Kings of Queens and uh, basically checking in with the 86 Mets and telling their, their each one of them has a compelling, great story. It, it was an absolutely riveting read. I have to admit, it was a quick read for me, but... Uh, 
uh, I pretty much couldn't put it down and uh, had it done in about two and a half hours. But, uh, you know, I highly encourage people, you know, whether, you know, whether you're looking forward to 2016 or you're, you know, wanting to be a little bit nostalgic, uh, you know, learn about uh, learning about or just catching up on some of these guys. Uh, hopefully, uh, as the uh, year goes on, we'll continue to talk 86 Mets along with the 2016 Mets. Um, obviously, we don't want to leave the 2016 team in the wind on this opening night. Um, you, know, you got EJ's take on that. You got my take on that. Not a fan of Sunday night baseball. Uh, I may check in on the game and watch well, probably most of it, more so than, than EJ, since uh, I'm neither a fan of the WWE or, or uh, The Walking Dead. But uh, you know, certainly um, not a fan of the concept, not a fan of the announcers, not a fan of uh, what will likely be a uh, Kansas City Royals kiss-ass fest. Uh, tonight on uh, the worldwide leader, but uh, certainly uh, the fact is when all is said and done, uh, sentiment aside, this game counts, it goes in the standings, and the Mets had better show up because it's going to be a great year. Uh, The only ones holding them back are themselves. They've got the tools. Sandy has put together a fantastic roster, and it should be a great year, hopefully one that in 30 years uh, probably won't be a podcast to talk about. Hopefully we'll advance beyond podcasting. But hopefully in 30 years, this is a team that writers will be writing about. And that's certainly, I think, the hope that we all have as Met fans is as we look back at the 86 team and the books that have been written about them, that in 30 years, this team is equally remembered. For EJ and Ryan, until next week uh, when uh, I'll be off, but uh, our good friend Ed Marcus will be filling in for me. Until next week. when Ryan and EJ will be with you and along with Ed Marcus uh, we'll talk to you then. Again, you can find uh, Ryan at uh, the Big Country Griff on Twitter. You can find uh, EJ at the Happy Recap. You can find me at um, uh, the Real Who. I almost forgot my own Twitter handle there. That's never good. You can find us on Facebook at the Happy Recap and of course the Mothership, the Originator. If you're still into the message boards thehappyrecap.com where you can take part in Met Conversation 24-7. It's opening night, like it or not. Let's go Mets!